I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. To get to the truth of the matter about the situation in Ukraine as it's evolving, we have with us Derek Cholet, who is counselor of the United States Department of State, where he serves at the rank of undersecretary and as a senior policy advisor to the secretary of state on a wide range of issues, conducts special diplomatic assignments and so forth. Derek is an old friend of CSIS. He used to be at CSIS with me and our colleagues here. So Derek, welcome back. Councillor Chole, it's great to have you with us. It's great to be back at CSIS. I had spent two wonderful years there and Boy, almost almost 20 years ago now. Everything I learned, I learned at CSIS, but it's it's great to be back with you. And I'm a fan of CSIS and particularly at moments like this where we there's so many challenges out there in the world. We need the support and help of folks in think tanks. And as someone who's who's a former and future think tanker, I uh, really admire the work you're doing and appreciate the opportunity to be on this podcast. Well, thanks so much. No one's been working harder than you all. And, you know, the first thing I wanted to ask you is, is, you know, president has an op-ed today in the New York Times about Ukraine and about our assistance to Ukraine. In fact, it's called what America will and will not do in Ukraine. It draws some lines, but it also, you know, provides some clarification and some information. What, what did you make of what the president had to say? The president felt it was very important to make a definitive statement at this moment about what we are doing in Ukraine and to give a sense of of his thinking on this. Of course, he has spoken to this issue many, many times over the last 100 days since the invasion began. And it's hard to think it's only been 100 days. But particularly given all the questions out there about what we're doing with our assistance, I think it's important for everyone to remember that since February 24th, we provided $4.6 billion in security assistance to the Ukrainians. And the Congress has approved an additional $40 billion, more than half of that security assistance. And it's it's really unprecedented. I cannot think of a situation, certainly since the Lend-Lease in, in the early 1940s, where the United States has provided this amount of assistance in this period of time to a combatant in a conflict that we're not part of. I mean, this is meaning we're not, U.S. troops are not engaged in this fight, and, but nevertheless, we're doing everything we can to support the Ukrainians as they defend their country. So the op-ed obviously speaks for itself. The president wanted to be very clear what our overall goal is, which is to seek a democratic, independent, sovereign, and prosperous Ukraine with an ability to defend itself and deter aggression, to make very clear that we do not seek a war with Russia. We don't seek to widen this conflict to one between the U.S. and Russia or NATO and Russia. That said, we will defend every inch of NATO territory, and the president's been very clear on that from day one, and that overall, of course, the principles we're trying to uphold here, beyond trying to, in showing that Ukraine and a country should be able to defend itself by itself and not be subject to unprovoked, unjustified military invasions, as Russia has done to Ukraine, is that we want, we're pursuing a peaceful and, and stable Europe. And we want to make it clear that might doesn't make right, and the international order needs to be strengthened, not weakened. And that's what we think is at stake here in Ukraine. And so working with our allies and partners, and I think it's really important to underscore that, that the United States is 
putting forth the most resources and whether that's measured in, in security assistance or economic support. But we're doing this in conjunction with allies and partners, which has been really at the foundation of our approach from the very beginning, from the early days of the intelligence reports from last fall when we started to bring allies and partners into this effort to both support Ukraine and punish Russia. It's critical that we're doing that with the support of our allies in Europe and our, and our allies and partners all around the world. The assistance you're talking about, I mean, actually dwarfs what we even give Israel. Yeah, Ukraine is now the single largest recipient on an annual basis of U.S. security assistance. And the amount that, that Congress has, has authorized the president to use moving forward here, which of a 40 plus billion dollar package, more than 20 of that is on security assistance. I mean, that gives us a healthy pipeline of materiel to provide Ukraine. And the latest drawdown, so drawdown is Washington speak for providing assistance, particularly from U.S. stocks. So we just, we provided 11 of those throughout this crisis. And the most recent one of a 700 million, which is the first of the drawdowns being taken from the money that Congress just recently authorized, which is going to some very sophisticated weapon systems. And it's going to significantly augment Ukraine's capability to defend itself. Let's talk about the weapon system. So there's been a lot made in the last several days about long-range missiles that we're giving to Ukraine. And, you know, by most estimates, they can extend 48 to 50 miles. President Zelensky of Ukraine would like to have missiles that go 75 miles. President and other U.S. officials have made clear that, you know, we don't want to give the Ukrainians something that could hit Russia. Why don't we want to do that? And, you know, what's the downside? Well, again, we are giving Ukraine very sophisticated multiple rocket launcher systems, uh, and it's going to increase their range either fourfold or fivefold, depending on how you measure it, so significantly in terms of what Ukraine currently has. And, you know, sometimes this, this gets shorthanded in the commentariat as short range systems. I mean, Again, we're talking at, at a distance of 80-some kilometers. I mean, this is like firing something from Washington and hitting targets with precision north of Baltimore. What we'll be providing Ukraine is a significant capability, and there are allies and partners who are also looking into giving them similar kinds of capabilities. We are in constant conversation with our Ukrainian partners here from the State Department at the Department of Defense about the systems they need as the contours of the war have changed, right? I mean, early, early on, it was about getting Stingers, anti-aircraft capability, obviously Javelins, which continue to be a priority. But since the conflict has moved and concentrated in the East, the, the focus has been on artillery and now longer range artillery. And that's what we are providing them. But as I said, we've got now north of $20 billion in security assistance that been allocated to the United States from our Congress on behalf of the American people to provide Ukraine security assistance. This is the first tranche. It's less than 5% total of what we're providing. And so we've got a long pipeline ahead. And as Ukraine's needs change, we're going to continue to take into account what their needs are and how we can best how we can best meet those. I should say, though, we, we don't want to widen the war. I mean, we, we're looking to provide Ukraine the ability to defend itself, to deter attack. Ukraine has shown through its remarkable courage and remarkable resilience and fighting ability that it can score points. It won the Battle of Kiev, right? I mean, Vladimir Putin's intent was to make quick work of the Ukrainian military, to take over Kiev in a matter of days, to replace that government and subjugate that country. He failed. 
full stop. The Ukrainians won the Battle of Kyiv. Now the battle is concentrated in the east, and we've, we and many others are trying to get Ukraine whatever they need to defend themselves in the east, and they're having some success, but it's going to be a long, tough fight. You know, my heart skipped a beat when you talked about a missile launching from D.C. and soaring over Baltimore. I thought about my beloved Camden Yards. I thought about my beloved <laughs> I, I Raven this Stadium. Is a, to put it in people in perspective for people, because sometimes when you're not familiar with the terrain, <laughs> right? Uh, you know, but it, these are significant, significant systems that we're providing the Ukrainians. It does take training. I mean, this is not like Amazon Prime where you can order it and it arrives the next day on your doorstep. It takes a little time. They've got to be trained to use the system. They've got to be trained to maintain the systems because it's one thing to learn how to use it. another thing to how to make sure how you keep it running over a long period of time. And these are obviously systems that are being used frequently. But that's that's the kind of support we're prepared to provide and we are providing to Ukraine. So this is a big question, Derek, but what, in your opinion, is going to finally get the Russians to back off? You know, that is the, the million dollar question. I mean, it's one that that scholars at CSIS are puzzling over, as are we. And ultimately, only Vladimir Putin knows the answer to that. I mean, it's it's a very simple proposition. I mean, Vladimir Putin could decide today to end this war. And if the Russians stop fighting, we could have peace. Now, if the Ukrainians stop fighting, we would see the end of Ukraine. Right, which is why the president in his op-ed made very clear that we are not pressuring Ukraine. We do not seek to force them to make any kind of concessions. They are they have to decide what their future security is going to look like. And again, we have been constantly talking to them about the negotiations and talks they've been having with the Russians intermittently over the last hundred days. Of course, those have led nowhere. So the, the prongs of our strategy, which which were established before this invasion in anticipation of it happening, have remained the same. We're going to support Ukraine with significant security assistance and economic and humanitarian assistance. We're going to reinforce our NATO allies and NATO's eastern flank. And you've, you've seen an aug- augmenting of U.S. forces along the eastern flank in the last several months. And we're preparing additional announcements along those lines in the coming weeks. We have a very important summit coming up uh, in Madrid, a NATO summit, where, among other things, we'll be talking about the new normal of our force presence, NATO's force presence along the eastern flank, but then also hopefully welcoming in two new NATO allies, which was on no one's to-do list at the beginning of the year, Finland and Sweden joining NATO, which will be a huge benefit to, uh, to the alliance to have them in. And then finally, uh, the third prong is to punish and isolate Russia and to try to change Moscow's calculation and about, about you know, how this conflict is or is not benefiting them. It's very hard. For, if I'm sitting in Moscow today, it's very hard to see how you're achieving your strategic goals by what Putin has done in Ukraine. I mean, Ru- Russia today is economically weaker, militarily weaker, far more isolated uh, in the international community. You've seen Hundreds and hundreds of Western companies flee Russia because they've they've made the correct judgment in our view that Russia is a bad place to do business. Crippling sanctions, you've seen historic moves made by Europeans on energy issues and and basically weaning themselves off Russia as a main energy supplier. I mean, things that very few people were predicting we would see happen, particularly in the first hundred days we've seen happen. And there's a question of was it strategic defeat or not? I mean, I think almost by any measure, this has already been a strategic defeat for Russia. But nevertheless, Putin seems determined to 
you know, at great expense to his country, continue to plow forward with this uh, brutal assault against Ukraine. And I think Russia will pay a heavy price for this. Well, they've already taken more than 50,000 Russians off the battlefield. So they're paying a big price. I guess it comes down to what can they really stomach? Ultimately, we can't divine that. All we can do is show our resolve, our determination, our support for, for Ukraine. I know there's been a lot of talk about you know, is the how long can the coalition stay together? Is I have to say, from where we sit here, I mean, you know, we we are also attuned to these these questions ourselves. But I, I have been quite reassured by the level of resilience we've seen among our European partners, NATO allies, non-European countries that are very much part of this coalition effort. I mean, we've seen countries like Japan, Korea, Singapore, Australia, New Zealand take major steps to support the Ukrainians, to punish the Russians, to sign on the sanctions, and a lot of public support out there. It's not just governments deciding this over the objections of their publics. I mean, we see it here in this country, you know, tried to get away for a day at Memorial Day weekend, uh, driving across the Eastern shore and saw Ukrainian flags alongside American flags on Memorial Day lawns, right? And I was in Utah recently and saw the Ukrainian flags flying outside of a hotel in Utah. I mean, it's, so I think the, the, the Ukrainians are inspiring us. And I think they remind us what's most important. And then it's not just here in the U.S., it's all around the world. And I think that, that that's being translated into, into government action. Just how important is the support of the American people? And do you think it can be sustained? Because this certainly seems like a long slog here. Well, I think obviously the American people's support is very important because also that support is what's behind the congressional support for our efforts. And I have to say, we've had remarkable bipartisan cooperation on this issue. I mean, in a moment where I imagine there's very few issues you can talk about on this podcast where you can talk about, you know, bipartisan support, the approach to Ukraine and, and what the U.S. is doing to support Ukraine is one that's got a lot of bipartisan support out there. And, you know, I think that that's, that that's vital. Absolutely. I think it's sustainable. I mean, look, Vladimir Putin is not helping himself. I mean, I think that in every respect, from the origins of this crisis in the unprovoked, unjustified invasion, the brutality with which Russia has executed this invasion, the war crimes and crimes against humanity that we have seen occur inside Ukraine has only stiffened our spines and I think furthers our resolve. And, and there are costs to this. I mean, President Biden has said this repeatedly, that we're all going to have to pay a price. I mean, the, the price that you and I and our, our fellow citizens are paying at the pump because it's it's a Putin tax. I mean, this is a result of Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine. The fact that Russia is blockading Ukrainian ports, making it very, very difficult to get the sizable Ukrainian wheat supply on the market is having an impact on food prices. So why aren't we saying that more publicly, that this is the gas prices are a Putin tax, inflation is a result of, you know, people are struggling out in America with this. And, you know, my fear is, is before long, those issues really dominate us here in the United States and, and we lose our attention span for what's going on in Europe. Europeans are obviously struggling with the same thing, and they're making extremely difficult choices of their own in terms of cutting off Russian energy, which is going to have an impact on European energy markets, clearly. Look, we are making the case. We're going to continue to make the case. I mean, the reason why I'm, you know, I and my colleagues are doing things like podcasts like this is because 
we want to be out there explaining what we're doing, answering the questions. And maybe this is just kind of my Midwestern optimism. I, I believe that we are going to be able to sustain the support. I think the bipartisan support is real. I think that, I mean, sure, there's debates, spirited debates, as there should be about what level of support, what kind of support. But I think we all need to, to brace ourselves for the long haul here. I think Putin has shown his true colors in this, uh, and we should not be under any illusions about his ambitions and, and what he is trying to achieve. So I, I think you know some of this is on us as, as government officials to continue to make the case and talk about why our efforts to support Ukraine are so important. And obviously, elected leaders are going to play the same role, but I, I'm confident we're going to be able to maintain that support. Do you think that Ukraine is winning the war in terms of getting their message out there? And is there something that they could be doing better? President Zelensky in particular has been an extremely effective advocate for his country throughout this crisis. And I, mean, I think he has spoken to just about every parliament or legislative body of consequence on the planet by now. Uh, he gave an extremely effective and emotional speech before our Congress here, but he's done the same before the Japanese Diet in the Israeli Knesset and the German Bundestag and the House of Commons in London and on and on. He has been leading this fight for his country and it's been truly inspirational, he and his colleagues. And, and you know, we've had the chance to see a lot of the Ukrainian foreign minister, Dmitry Kaleba at various meetings, uh, virtually certainly, but also at various meetings in the last several Months, who's also an extremely effective advocate for Ukraine. And now that we have our ambassador back in Kyiv, which is which is absolutely critical, Bridget Brink arrived there just a few days ago. And now that she's there and being able to gauge in person every day with Ukrainian leadership, I'm confident our, our level of cooperation and, and just the seamlessness of our cooperation will only increase because we'll have a team back in Kyiv for the first time since the invasion working these issues day in, day out. It doesn't seem like the Russian propaganda machine is very effective in this case. Well, I mean, facts are a stubborn thing, right? And so, you know, when we see the atrocities unfold in places like Bucha or the, the bombing of a maternity hospital or the theater that was sheltering hundreds of children, I mean, you just, you know, and, and I, I should give a shout out here as well to brave members of the media. I mean, this has been the first major war in Europe that's been covered in real time on social media with a lot of brave journalists out there. And of course, one of them uh, was gravely wounded. One of our State Department correspondents, a Fox News correspondent, uh, a few months back, who's who's recovering, but they're placing their lives in danger to get the, the news out. And look, I can't speak really to what's going on inside Russia. And I think it, it's clear that Vladimir Putin has a fairly tight control over that media ecosystem. But certainly, in the open world, Russia's attempt to try to sort of frame this fight as somehow they were the victims and this was, you know, Ukraine brought this upon themselves. It obviously was fraudulent from the start, but they've been unable to make that case, which I should also note was one of the rationales why we made the very difficult decision in the fall and winter of last year and early winter of this year to make the case publicly about the intelligence we were seeing, because this is a Russian playbook that we have seen before, where they tried to conjure up some provocation that they could use to justify something that they were intending to do all along. And so we thought that there was merit in, in, in taking some risk in making as much of the intelligence publicly available as possible 
to make sure everyone was on notice for, for what was likely to happen and not to be fooled by any Russian effort to try to you know, justify something that, that was preordained. You know, Derek, finally, I want to ask you about the China-Russia dynamic. What does China gain from supporting Russia here? And what's the line they really have to walk with the United States? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I mean, look, our view is they don't have anything to gain by supporting Russia. And, and we've been very clear to them in our direct engagements with them, but then also just publicly that that we see a real cost to them and, and their own stated ambitions if they are siding with Russia throughout uh, this crisis. And we've been very clear to them that in particular, if they are part of helping Russia circumvent sanctions, if they are providing Russia with military support in this conflict, that they'll pay a price. And by the way, that's not just us telling them that. They're hearing that in stereo from others. Look, I don't know what Vladimir Putin and President Xi talked about when they were together at the Winter Olympics a few weeks before the invasion. What we do know is that they released a very lengthy joint statement. And as someone who's in the past had a hand in, in drafting those joint statements, I had sympathy for whoever had to write this 5,000 word beast of a joint statement that they released. But it famously, you know, the, the tagline that that got all the attention, at, deservedly so, was that there was no limits to their partnership. And China, of course, in the early days in particular, was, was more vocal in its support for Russia and, and really picking up the Russian narrative about, you know, this was somehow provoked by NATO and all of that, which frankly doesn't do China much good in Central and Eastern Europe. And they're seeing that right now in front of their faces. But our sense is that China has backed off a bit in terms of, I mean, its support for Russia, its vocal support for Russia has been tamped down. Now, they're still siding with Russia in the UN Security Council and elsewhere, but their enthusiasm for this has tended to wane. I think they too, probably because the Russians were telling this, thought that this was going to be a, a quick conflict, uh, something that it's not played out in any way that they expected either. And I think that they're I'm hoping, and I, I think they are seeing the real downsides to them being all in on this, and they're probably reverting back to a more, shall I say, traditional Chinese perspective on these things, which is they don't want to own this problem. Like, they don't want to own other people's problems, and they're sort of trying to not fully abandon Russia, disassociate themselves with Russia, but trying to hedge a little more. Well, what is it that China really has to gain by being this close to Russia at this well, point? We don't think they have any gains, so that's... A, our argument has been this would be a big mistake for you. I don't know, you know, whether they think that this is Russia's success is a step for them to help break the international system that they clearly were trying to, if not break outright, certainly to transform in a way that's more favorable to them. I would obviously commend to all of your listeners the speech that Secretary Blinken gave uh, last week here in Washington that was the most definitive statement of the administration's approach to China in all of its dimensions in the 16 months uh, since the administration's been in office. But it speaks to this issue of China and its, its approach to the Ukraine crisis and its overall approach to trying to change the international system. Derek, is there any indication that anyone's actually winning this war or are we just in a frozen conflict here? Well, Russia is losing. I mean, Russia has not achieved its goals. It, it did not overthrow the Zelensky government. It did not occupy Kyiv. It has gained territory, but only to have that territory be retaken by Ukraine. Now, this is a very tough fight. And Ukraine needs our help and support. 
And every day that Zelensky stays in power and that Ukraine gets stronger and gets more of our support and takes the fight to the Russians is a day that they're winning. Our goal is to ensure that Ukraine can be sovereign, can be independent, and can be able to defend itself by itself. That's our goal. And we are on path to achieving that, but we shouldn't be under any illusion that this is going to be easy or it's going to be cost-free, and it's not going to be possible without some common sacrifice. But we all, we just have to always keep in mind the tremendous resilience and bravery of the Ukrainian people here, who are you know, stepping up in extraordinary ways. And, and the countries around Ukraine that are showing tremendous generosity by absorbing millions of refugees right now. Now, obviously, we want Ukraine to get to a place where many of those folks can go back home, and we want to achieve that as well. But you know, I think our key goal here is to ensure that, that Ukraine can remain sovereign and independent. Derek, this has been fantastic. Counselor Derek Cholet, thanks for being on Truth of the Matter today and giving us some real insight into what's going on with this conflict. Great to be with you, Andrew. Thanks. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 